Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew Auto Know. It is my super busy season with Birthright, so I haven't had time to post new episodes lately, but don't worry, I'm working on more. And although I started out posting the occasional episode about current events, it got too hard to keep up in a timely way, so I haven't really been doing that. But the last couple weeks in Israel have been super eventful and a bit confusing since there are things happening all over the country. So I thought I would post an episode today explaining a bit about what's going on and why and maybe what it all means. As always, it's the stuff you ought to know. So here we go. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so there are three things going on in three parts of the country. One criticism that I have of the way the media has been covering all this the last couple weeks is the suggestion that they are all causally connected, that each thing is feeding off of and inspiring the other. And that's not really the case. As we'll see, there are reasons these things are happening now, but as far as being connected, it's really mostly coincidence. Other than the general connection that they all have to do with Israel's problems with various actors in the Middle East, and by the way, not all of them, like the Iranians, for instance, are Arab. So let's take a walk through three parts of the country where there's been conflict. It might be helpful for you to check out Google Maps or whatever as we go along. Okay, so first, all the way up in the northeast corner of Israel is a region called the Golan Heights. The Golan is basically a mountain ridge that overlooks northern Israel on one side and the Syrian border on the other. I've been there on every birthright trip. It's a great place for hiking and wineries and outdoorsy stuff. And it's a place where you can get up very close to the Syrian border, as close as a few hundred yards in some places. And the reason why is that until 1967, the Golan was Syria. There was never a border, but rather a ceasefire line, where the Israeli army and the Syrian army had agreed to stop fighting in 1949. That's actually still the case today. The high mountain plateau overlooking northern Israel was a huge strategic advantage, and the Syrian military used it to stage attacks frequently firing artillery shells at Israeli villages down below or allowing terrorists to infiltrate from Syrian territory. You can still find the remnants of those military bases all over the place. Israel would respond with its own counterattacks, and in this way the Golan region was in a state of constant tension and low-level conflict. Until 1967. In June of that year, Israel fought the Six-Day War against the armies of Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Israel captured the Golan Heights, pushing the Syrians back over the ridge to the east, from where they could no longer attack Israeli villages on the other side. The Golan has remained in Israeli hands since then, and unlike the Palestinian-occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, Israel officially annexed the Golan in 1981, adding it to Israel's territory. Was this legal? Depends on who you ask. Israel says it was, in compliance with the United Nations resolutions that recognize Israel's right to establish borders that keep it free from threats and attacks. But most of the international community has refused to recognize the Golan as Israeli territory. But at this point, it's moot. The area is so strategic to Israel's security that it will never give it up. Syria and Israel have never signed a peace agreement, so technically a state of war exists between them, but it's usually pretty quiet up there. Syria hasn't had the capability to attack Israel since the 1970s. It was quiet, that is, until lately. The 
Syrian civil war opened up a battlefront on the border area with the Golan Heights. Not between Syria and Israel, but between the Syrian government and the rebel groups fighting the, to topple the Assad government. I like to point out to my birthright participants that when they are looking at Syria up there, they are looking at territory essentially controlled by Al-Qaeda. Israel's policy has been to not intervene militarily in the Syrian civil war unless its national security is threatened. In fact, the Israeli army was covertly providing medical and humanitarian assistance to Syrians who made it to the Israeli border. Israel has treated thousands of refugees, displaced persons, and other victims of the civil war. The IDF continues doing so openly but quietly through Operation Good Neighbor. But in recent years, there's been another challenge that does directly threaten Israel's national security. Iran has used the cover of the civil war and its alliance with the Syrian government to import rockets, drones, and other sophisticated weapons into Syrian territory, and often close to Israel. Iran wants to establish a military sphere, running from the Mediterranean Sea across Lebanon, Syria, and northern Iraq, all the better to control the Middle East and wage its campaign of terror against Israel. Israel's response has been to occasionally attack Iranian military targets within Syria to prevent Iran's military from building up the capability to attack Israel. Iran has threatened to retaliate, and on May 10th, they did. Just past midnight, Iran fired 20 rockets at the Golan Heights. Several of the rockets were intercepted by Israel's missile defense system, called the Iron Dome. Others fell into Syrian territory. There were no injuries and very little damage. But Israelis in the north spent much of that night in bomb shelters, just in case. The attack may not have mounted much, but it was the first time that Iran has directly attacked Israel, which makes everyone really nervous that a bigger war is coming. In response to the rocket attack, Israel launched airstrikes on Iranian military targets throughout Syria, including the capital, Damascus. The Israeli Air Force did major damage, killing around seven Iranians, but also destroying, it's thought, much of Iran's current military capabilities in Syria. No doubt, Iran will resupply, and the tit-for-tat will continue. But since then, the Golan Heights has gone back to being quiet. I'm scheduled to visit there in a few weeks. That brings us to our second hotspot the last couple weeks, though really it's been a hotspot for most of the last 3,000 years, Jerusalem. In 1949, a year after Israel declared its independence, it identified Jerusalem as its capital city. But no other country in the world recognized that. Why? Well, in short, the international community was trying to create an Arab state and a Jewish state in Palestine, and the idea was that Jerusalem would be a kind of international zone whose final status would be negotiated between the parties. It was a divided city, with Israel controlling the western half and Jordan controlling the eastern, including them, the old city. So as the nations of the world officially recognized Israel and established diplomatic relations, they all located their embassies in Tel Aviv, including the United States, right on the beach. Not sure how they get any work done. This has always really bothered Israel. Israel and its supporters maintain that Israel, like any other country in the world, has the right to identify whatever city it wants as its capital. And therefore, every country ought to recognize Jerusalem as such by putting their embassies there. But this being Jerusalem, nothing is that simple. In the same Six-Day War of 1967, in which Israel captured the Golan Heights, Israel also captured the eastern half of Jerusalem, including the Old City and the Western Wall, from Jordan. 
Like with the Golan, Israel later annexed East Jerusalem into Israel proper, a move that, again, the international community has refused to recognize as legitimate. In this way, Israel declares that Jerusalem is a united city, and thus Israel's bedrock policy is that it will never again allow Jerusalem to be divided. Well, here's the problem. The Palestinians have long maintained that when they get a Palestinian state, East Jerusalem will be their capital. Currently, it's Ramallah. That brings us back to square one, where the outcome of Jerusalem, called the final status in diplomatic speak, will have to be negotiated and agreed to by the Israelis and the Palestinians together. So you can see why establishing an embassy there, let alone the United States' embassy, is both hugely symbolic and also very problematic. On the one hand, we're back to Israel's argument. Of course the embassy should be in Jerusalem, that's our capital. The Israelis would consider it a powerful symbol of American support. To that end, wanting to show support for Israel, the United States Congress passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act in 1995. The legislation compelled the president to formally recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move the embassy there. But there was a loophole. Every six months, the president can waive this responsibility under national security grounds. And since 1995, every president has. Clinton, Bush Jr., and Obama, every six months, issued a waiver saying that for reasons of national security, they weren't going to move the embassy. Until Trump. Therefore, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I've judged this course of action to be in the best interests of the United States of America and the pursuit of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. I conveniently cut out the part where Trump bragged about how all the other presidents were awful, except for him. But in December of 2017 there, Trump announced his intention to comply with the Jerusalem Embassy Act. And on May 14th, 2018, the embassy opened. Now, a point of clarification. It's not a whole new building or anything like that. There already was in Jerusalem an American consulate, a mini-embassy. Mostly what the United States has done is changed the name from consulate to embassy and kept the same building in the same location. There is a plot of land in Jerusalem set aside for the future embassy, but it's unclear at the moment if and when that new building process will get started. The reason why this is a huge problem is because as much as the embassy is symbolic for Israel, it's also immensely symbolic for the Palestinians. They have always said that moving the American embassy to Jerusalem would be a betrayal. It would mean that the United States had fully taken Israel's side, that it can no longer be an honest broker, and that it has given up on the peace process. It's a crushing disappointment at a time when the Palestinian government in the West Bank is already weak and divided. Now, there were lots of predictions, assumptions really, that the embassy opening would lead to mass rioting in Jerusalem, that the Palestinians would take to the streets in violent protests across East Jerusalem. It certainly wasn't unreasonable to expect that, given past precedent. And yet, it didn't happen. There were some protests, but they were far more muted than many expected. So why did Trump do it? Well, because we all know that he likes to be contrary and he likes to cause trouble. The experts all said don't do it, so of course he went ahead and did it. But he also did it for American domestic political reasons. To appeal to his base. Not his Jewish base, because he doesn't really have one, but his Christian evangelical base. 
Now, the story of the evangelical support for Israel is a really long one, and I can't get into it here. But moving the embassy to Jerusalem has been high on the Christian rights foreign policy agenda for some time. They believe in supporting Israel because, well, the messianic prophecies require Jews to be in control of the Holy Land before the Messiah comes, and I hate to say it, because of broad antagonism towards Muslims and Arabs in general. Maybe I'm being unfair. But at the embassy's opening last week, you had the specter of American preachers standing in the American embassy in Jerusalem in front of the Prime Minister of Israel and invoking Jesus for bringing forth this wonderful day. Not the best optics. And speaking of bad optics, it happened that the embassy opening coincided with our third hotspot, Gaza. The Gaza Strip has a long history as a strategic part of the Middle East crossroads. In the 20th century, it first belonged to the Ottomans, then the British, and then Egypt, until the 1967 Six-Day War, when Israel captured it in battle. Israel occupied Gaza with settlers and the IDF protecting them until 2005. That year, Israel's right-wing Prime Minister Ariel Sharon ordered a unilateral withdrawal of all Israelis from the Strip. Unilateral, because Israel left without securing a peace agreement that would obligate the Palestinians to fulfill any agreements. So technically, Gaza isn't occupied by Israel anymore. But it is still surrounded, and we'll get to that in a minute. Now after Israel's pullout, Gaza was governed by the Palestinian Authority, the same Palestinian government that operates the West Bank. The PA, as it's called, had a decent working relationship with Israel, especially when it came to security. And so the hope was that the Palestinian Authority would steer Gaza into economic and political development, with the help of both Israel and Egypt. But that didn't happen. Instead, Hamas took over. Hamas is an acronym, meaning Islamic Resistance Movement, and it was founded in 1987 with the goal of destroying Israel, of violently kicking out all the Jews, and turning Israel into an Islamic state. It's an extremely violent, anti-Semitic, and internationally recognized terrorist group, most famous for using suicide bombings against Israeli civilians. And in addition to hating Israel, Hamas also hates the more moderate Palestinian Authority. In 2006, elections were held in Gaza, and Hamas won against the Palestinian Authority. In 2007, the two sides fought a brief but violent civil war for about a week, and Hamas took over Gaza. Western countries, led by the United States, the European Union, the United Nations, and Russia, demanded that Hamas renounce violence, recognize the right of Israel to exist, and abide by other international agreements. Hamas refused, on all counts. With the terrorists in charge, they began importing weapons with which to attack Israel, such as rockets. Hamas amassed thousands. Hamas also diverted a huge percentage of Gaza's imported resources and its budget to developing its military capabilities. At one point, nearly 50% of Gaza's budget was diverted for Hamas's terrorist activities against Israel. For example, Hamas took in building materials from Israel, and rather than build housing or schools or things like that, used those materials to build tunnels underneath the borders with Egypt and Israel. The tunnels under Egypt were used for smuggling. The tunnels underneath Israel were used for only one purpose, sneaking Hamas terrorists into Israel to try to kill or kidnap Israelis living near the border. 
Israel and Egypt responded by declaring a blockade, sealing Gaza's borders, and imposing Israeli control over the coastline and the air. Water, electricity, imports and exports, the movement of people, all are dependent on Egypt and Israel, mostly Israel. Israel maintains a strict blockade, refusing to allow any materials into Gaza which could have a dual purpose. In other words, no cement to build anything. Israel allows in humanitarian goods and often allows out Gazans who need high-level medical care, but at times the blockade has really gone to the extreme, barring food, fuel, staple products, even clothing items. And with the exception of extreme humanitarian cases, Gazas are pretty much locked in. They're not allowed by either Israel or Egypt to leave. And yet, every time Israel does make a move to ease the restrictions, Hamas takes advantage to import more weapons and wage more attacks. For the last 10 years, Hamas has engaged in a steady, if sporadic, stream of attacks on Israel, mostly launching rockets at Israeli cities, including Tel Aviv. At times, this has spilled into all-out war, like in 2008, 2012, and 2014. I was there during the 2014 war, when Hamas fired thousands of rockets into Israel, and Israel responded with airstrikes that killed 2,000 Palestinians and wrecked much of Gaza's infrastructure. Hamas's leaders hid out in the basement of the main hospital, knowing that Israel would never attack the hospital. Israel didn't, and the terrorist leaders survived. So that brings us to what's been going on there lately. Several weeks ago, Hamas announced a mass protest movement. The goal was to gather so many thousands of people along the borderline that they would break through the border, overwhelm Israel's defense, and flood Israel with tens of thousands of Palestinians who would, quote, return, unquote, as in return to the home and villages that they had left when Israel was declared a state in 1948. There's a whole history of those Palestinian refugees that is very interesting and very challenging, but it, it really it needs its own podcast episode. Now, no doubt there were many thousands of Palestinians out there near the border who were entirely peaceful and gathered as a show of strength and solidarity. Along the border fences, however, it was not really peaceful. Those protesters were armed, and they were violently attacking the border with the intention to breach it and to get into Israel. Hamas has been very vocal and very open that the goal of these protests is to break into Israel and murder, but even better, kidnap as many Israelis as they can to bring them back into Gaza to hold as hostages. Hamas encouraged the protesters to show up with weapons, guns and knives and bombs and Molotov cocktails and everything. And Hamas has also said that they are deceiving the Palestinians into rushing the border fence, knowing that the Israeli army is going to fire back and kill people, which Hamas, again, openly, totally openly, says this is what they want because it makes Israel look bad. About 62 people were killed by Israeli fire across the border, and hundreds or thousands more were injured. Hamas has said that of the 62 people killed, 50 of them were Hamas members. 50 of them were terrorists. They were not peaceful. They were actively engaged in violence with the intention of crossing the border to kill Israelis. But it's also the case that it seems at least a dozen people were killed who were probably not necessarily engaged in violent activity. They were just in proximity to it. Israel has been accused now and condemned for using disproportionate force, and maybe they did, but maybe not. Maybe they were engaged in necessary self-defense. I think Israelis in general are feeling extremely conflicted right now. They are torn between having killed all these people and the absolute obligation of the Israeli army to defend the border. One thing we can say with certainty 
is that were 10,000 Hamas-led militants to break through the border somehow, it would be an all-out war, and the loss of life on both sides would be horrific. Whether that justifies Israel's aggressive response to the protests, well, it's both hard to eat, hard to say, and too easy to judge. What is straightforward to judge is that the people of Gaza gain nothing from violence, and gain nothing from Hamas's use of their lives as a PR stunt to make Israel look bad. And there's no doubt that many Palestinians feel this way, and are deeply critical of the way that Hamas has completely abrogated its governing responsibilities the last 10 years. But they can't really say that out loud, because Hamas will labor them as traitors and execute them in the public square. So where do things stand now? It's mostly all quiet. There's been no further engagement with Iranian forces up in the Golan Heights. Jerusalem is going about as normal, with the start this past weekend of the holy month of Ramadan. And even Hamas in Gaza has pulled back from the protests along the border, scared of pushing too far and starting yet another war that it can't possibly win. Still, it's claimed victory from the past two weeks, having made Israel look bad in the eyes of the international community. Israel, for its part, isn't really in the mood for taking big risks for peace, or even for better relations with the Palestinians. Israel's economy is booming. The Arab states that surround it are mostly struggling. Egypt with a dictatorship, Jordan with economic turmoil, Lebanon with political turbulence, and Syria with a civil war. Relations with Saudi Arabia and other countries are improving. The Palestinians are hopelessly divided between an ossified and corrupt Palestinian authority in the West Bank and the terrorists of Hamas in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority has leveled sanctions at Gaza, cutting off electricity payments and other areas of cooperation. Meanwhile, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, rather than pursuing the peace process, has settled into managing the conflict, successfully dealing with low-level violence and the occasional outburst, without resorting to all-out war. So what's going to happen next? It's the Middle East. No one has a clue. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope to be back with our regularly scheduled podcast programming soon. Talk to you then.